You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Votes. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We know that the Jewish vote and the Jewish voter is not monolithic, that there are many issues at stake in November's election, and each of these issues are issues that the Jewish community and our tradition has much to say. On this week's episode, we focus on what's at stake for the continuous fight for true LGBTQ equality and rights. And we'll be having conversation today with Edie Klein, who serves as uh, leader of Keshet, the National Organization of LGBTQ Equality in Jewish Life. Since especially this is a conversation about how we welcome the queer community, how we welcome also trans and non-binary Jews into our community. I would encourage all Jewish communities to start conversations by having individuals introduce their preferred pronouns, the pronouns that they use. So I'll begin, before introducing Edith, I'll begin, as I said, I'm Jesse Olitsky and I use the pronouns he, him, and his. Welcome, Edith. Thanks so much, Jesse. And I use the pronouns she, her, and hers. I'm wondering if you'll start by sharing with us about uh, your work at Keshet and what Keshet does for the Jewish community. Absolutely. So um, Keshet works to advance LGBTQ equality in Jewish life um, by working in um, three uh, major realms. Um, first, we work um, with, as, as you know from your own work as a congregational rabbi, we work with um, all sorts of Jewish institutions, synagogues, day schools, youth movements, um, Jewish family and children's service organizations, you know, et cetera, et cetera, working with their leadership, both staff and lay leaders, to give them the tools and the knowledge that they need to advance LGBTQ inclusive policies, cultures, and programs um, within those institutions. And so that's work that we do nationally. Um, secondly, we work directly with LGBTQ Jewish teens. Um, for years, we um, didn't do work directly with teens. Um, when asked, how are you making the lives of LGBTQ Jewish teens better? We would say, well, we're work we work with youth group advisors and with day school teachers and with rabbis. Um, and basically, we had some teens, some queer Jewish teens come to us and say, we get that you're working to make life better for the queer Jewish teens who will show up five years from now, but what are you doing for us today? Um, and so, and we took that really to heart and, um, and we started a whole suite of programs for LGBTQ Jewish teens. Generally, it's bringing queer Jewish teens together in person for opportunities to just be together in a space where they can unselfconsciously be themselves as queer Jews. Um, nowadays, all of that is happening um, in Zoom land, um, but, uh, but actually particularly now given you know, the, uh, exacerbated isolation that um, a lot of queer people, in particular teens, are experiencing. Um, those connections are, are really more vital than ever. Um, and then lastly, we work 
to mobilize Jewish community members to take action on LGBTQ rights issues in the broader world. How have you seen the Jewish community evolve with regards to LGBTQ inclusion over the past decade, let's say? Um, I have seen such tremendous change um, in the Jewish community and in the broader world in LGBTQ rights. But, um, but you asked me about the Jewish community, so I'll answer your question. Um, I mean, when I started doing this work, you know, which, which was more than a decade ago, um, this was back in the early 2000s, um, so I'm extending the time frame a bit. Um, back then, it, it was a triumph every time I was able to identify a rabbi who was willing to publicly stand with us. Back then, there wasn't a single Jewish high school in the country with the Gay-Straight Alliance, which today we, of course, call Gender and Sexuality Alliances. Um, and it was the norm um, for me to have to um, really struggle to explain the validity of my work and of the organization I was running. I mean, the most common response I used to get when I told people what I did for work was, huh, so how is that a Jewish issue? I don't get how that's relevant to the Jewish community. So um, I never get that response anymore, ever. Um, you know, today, I mean, you know, there are you know, hundreds and hundreds of rabbis who are proud to publicly stand with us. Um, today, the majority of Jewish community, pluralistic high schools have gender and sexuality alliances. Um, and today, um, not everyone agrees in the Jewish community on um, the centrality of LGBTQ equality as a value, um, as something that uh, is, is not uh, in spite of Jewish tradition, but that aligns with our most deeply held values of upholding human dignity as Jews. Now, but not everyone agrees with that. Um, but it's on the communal radar screen everywhere. So that's a huge change. Um, lastly, I'll share that um, 10 plus years ago, it was much more common to experience um, overt homophobia and um, overt hostility, overt antagonism, um, and you know, much less common to encounter communities where there was a basic level of tolerance and rare to encounter communities where queer people were celebrated. So today, I would say that um, there certainly are still communities uh, that are hostile to LGBTQ people, but that is much more rare. Um, what I'd say is common in American Jewish communal life is a basic level of tolerance towards LGBTQ people. Um, and sometimes there's a difficulty and a resistance to understanding why tolerance isn't enough, why you know, no one wants to, to just be tolerated in the community that is their home, um, and to understand why we're pushing for communities where we're celebrated. I'm wondering if I could really ask you to expand on that idea a bit more, because I, I agree with you. I'm proud to serve as a rabbi, as a community that believes that we really celebrate our LGBTQ community members, proud to be in a uh, town, in the towns of South Orange and, and Maplewood, New Jersey, which really celebrates the uh, queer residents and families who live in our towns. Uh, but how do you teach celebrating 
versus just tolerating or condoning? And how do you encourage Jewish communities for all those Jewish communal leaders listening to make that push to go from A, which is essential, talking about one's human dignity, but that's not enough to tolerate, as you said, uh, we want to understand that each person is made in God's divine image. Mm -hmm. So we, by celebrating them, we're celebrating our relationship with God as well. Yeah, yeah, that's very beautifully said. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can give some concrete examples. I mean, so, you know, a, a community that tolerates LGBTQ people, you know, is a community um, where you're not going to be kicked out if you're openly gay, lesbian, bi, or transgender. Um, a community that celebrates LGBTQ people um, is a community that um, hosts a whole suite of events um, during Pride Month, kind of, you know, celebrating the you know, diversity and extraordinary contributions of LGBTQ Jews to Jewish life. Um, you know, a community that, that celebrates will be a community whose social justice committee takes on an LGBTQ rights fight as one of its campaigns. A community that celebrates will be a community that when, um, you know, that, that, that integrates LGBTQ issues into its curriculum for synagogues, let's say for supplementary schools or into, into its programming. Um, so it's not a, it's not a one-time thing that happens once a year at Pride, but rather, you know, when teaching about Jewish life cycles, that's an opportunity to speak about the, you know, creative configurations of different kinds of Jewish family life and approaches to Jewish ritual and ceremony that exist today because of the presence of LGBTQ people in Jewish life. You know, to see the, you know, incredibly both imaginative and deeply tied to Jewish tradition um, representations of um, B'nai Mitzvah that we, you know, are seeing, you know, happen today, um, you know, given that, you know, there are many trans, gender, queer, gender nonconforming kids who, you know, who are um, wanting to, um, wanting to participate in that ceremony in a way that um, they don't feel just that they're kind of squeezing themselves into a space that doesn't quite fit them, um, but that it's actually a space, um, you know, in which they feel beautiful and holy. You know, Judaism, specifically, I think partially it has to do with Hebrew itself, uh, is very gendered and really looks at gender from a binary structure, mm -hmm. which um, the, the Torah tells us, right, that, that God created the first human being, Zachar that the first human being actually had many different genders um, as a part of them. The first human being really focused on the diversity of the gender spectrum and the mission itself uh, reflects on six different genders. But because Hebrew is so gendered, I think you're right that our communities have become focused to focus on the binary nature of gender sometimes with regards to uh, how we talk about God, with regards to how we talk about each other, using the terms bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. Uh, even if we use those to celebrate somebody who is transgender, if somebody is gender non-binary, gender non-conforming, 
we want to make sure that there is a way that they still have a, a space to be not just celebrated, but felt safe and welcome. Because if a sacred space is not a safe space for somebody, then it can't be a sacred space for anybody. So how would you encourage Jewish communities to rethink the idea of gender within their communities to make sure that all those on the diverse gender spectrum feel welcome and accepted? Yeah, so we, I mean, we always encourage communities, you know, first to you know, listen to the voices that are already likely in your communities um, that may not have ever felt invited to speak and that may not have ever felt like their voices matter. Um, you know, and you know, and, and and to learn as 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 you as you said, Jesse. Um, you know, right in you know the opening lines of our core text, you know, we we see uh, that you know the essence of humanity is a being of multiple genders, um, and so you know we, you know, and and you know, and there are many other places within Jewish tradition where we can find those affirmations for what we know is the reality, you know, the, the reality of, of um, people having multiple gender identities um, and multiple ways of expressing their gender. Um, so there's Jewish learning, um, there's secular learning, um, and there's really, really listening to, um, you know, people of all generations within your communities, you know, to hear what their needs are, to hear what their experiences are. Um, I mean, so much of the programming that Keshet does, um, we, we do in response to um, what we've learned from, in particular, some of the young um, non-binary folks um, who have taken on leadership in Keshet. I want to come back to something that you said earlier about um, how the Jewish community has evolved during your tenure as president and CEO of Keshet. I'm wondering if we could spend some time focusing on how our country has evolved. Uh, since 2013, there's really been these three landmark Supreme Court decisions that have really advanced the work of LGBTQ activists to ensure rights and dignity for the LGBTQ community. Um, two happened during Obama's second term as president. One recently happened during Trump's presidency. I wanna begin by talking about um, the Windsor v. United States case and really what that meant as a, a really shattering moment for the homophobia that existed in the government for a long time. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, it was seven years ago and I, 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 I so vividly remember everything about where I was when the Windsor decision came in, um, as, as well as Obergefell a couple of years later. Um, you know, but the Windsor decision was the first major marriage case. And um, I mean, it, it had obvious immediate legal ramifications in, in terms of overturning DOMA, um, the Defense of Marriage Act, um, you know, enabling um, Americans who um, had non-citizen partners um, to sponsor them and bring them to the states, 
Um, and so I mean, there were numerous um, couples who you know had been stranded in other countries or you know or or or, or separated because of DOMA. Um, you know who were able to be reunited, who were able to be reunited here, um, and you know, and it it um, it was a decision that you know really gave um, many LGBTQ Americans just this fundamental sense of dignity um, that our relationships are expressions of love and attachment, um, that you know that they are you know are equally valid um, under the law and um, you know and that whole period of the of evolution of marriage equality from you know a grassroots movement to a legal movement to um, legal realities um, along with it was this whole process of um, moving from legal realities to lived realities um, you know we won marriage equality because people came out and because people knew people who were gay, people knew people who were in same-sex relationships and were faced with what was unmistakable, you know, which is, you know, as has become a cliche to say, but is very true that love is love is love. Soon after that decision, less than two years later, you had the Obergefell v. Hodges decision which made marriage equality the law of the lands. Um, prior to that, there were 36 states, including uh, territories like DC and Guam, where that had already um, ruled or voted um, through a voter initiative for uh, marriage equality in their own state. Massachusetts was the state for a very long time. And then there was this almost snowball effect where in a very short period of time, uh, and it was only five years ago, and, uh, but it seemed all of a sudden state after state after state through court challenges and through uh, ballot initiatives were quickly uh, making marriage equality the law of those states so that this ruling by the Supreme Court it was inevitable, it seemed, that it would become the law of the land where so many states were making these decisions. What are the, the impact that the Windsor case had ultimately so quickly overnight almost within a very short period of time in the span of the fight for LGBTQ equality to uh, make marriage equality a reality for the country? Well, it's, it's, it's true that there was there was this kind of you know cascading forth of um marriage equality spreading throughout the land but what we skipped over was you know you know was the period of retrenchment i mean there was a period after we secured marriage equality in massachusetts in 2007 when um you know when a bunch of states passed one man one woman constitutional amendments right, there's proposition uh, 8 in california right prop 8 in california which was a colossal loss um so you know there there you know there was i mean i think now looking back um it feels like it was this linear process and it did in historical times certainly happen very quickly and um you know there there were some really devastating losses that um, you know, were a direct result of 
um, you know, an attempt to you know, establish this le legal bulwark against um, marriage equality coming. Um, and I mean, I'll say from where I sat, uh, winning Obergefell did not at all feel like a foregone conclusion. Uh, I mean, it did feel like the country was ready for it, um, but uh, you know, we we it, we it, we for sure were not counting on that, you know, as you know, as as a sure thing. Um, so, but again, um, you know, there was the you know the glorious legal impact of of marriage equality suddenly existing everywhere. Um, you know, and then the, you know, those powerful, powerful symbolic moments of, you know, the White House being lit up in rainbow colors and, you know, the photos of, you know, then President Obama and Vice President Biden, you know, racing down the hallway to, you know, find out the news in the Supreme Court. Um, and so, you know, there was something that was so validating um, about, you know, like seeing, you know, for so long having had leaders um, who were not ready to support marriage equality, um, to see that they were not just supporting marriage equality, they were doing so in an exultant way. Um, and that was, and that was really extraordinary. And then really the most recent Supreme Court decision, uh, which uh, was announced really at the beginning of the summer, only a, a few months ago, was a decision that the Supreme Court's uh, overwhelmingly, uh, which is, you know, it's more than just that one vote decision uh, on a Supreme Court that leans conservative right now, a six to three decision uh, was a decision about uh, making it illegal for one, for an employer to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity um, and looking at the Civil Rights Act as guidance to uh, protect against LGBTQ employment protection. Yeah, and that that was, you know, just tremendous, and you know, such an unexpected right spot uh, in a time of um, in a time of you know the opposite uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, so yeah, that was not really not really not expected, um, and you know, it, and so significant both in its immediate application to places of employment, um, you know, which are places where LGBTQ people routinely experience discrimination, um, and you know, the potential of that legal precedent to strengthen cases um, for outlawing discrimination in other facets of life, whether it be in, in healthcare, in housing, in public accommodations. Um, so there's, it, it, you know, sets, it, it sets us up well to, for our rights to be greatly expanded in those other areas. And, um, you know, and of course, I have to say that part of part of Bostock's significance was, you know, it coming under this administration, because this administration, um, you know, within, you know, within days of being in office, you know, this president signed an executive order that endangered the safety of transgender kids. Um, you know, then went on to impose a trans military ban, has gone on to encourage um, health and human service agencies to very liberally use so-called 
religious liberty as a justification for discriminating against LGBTQ people. So, I mean, this has been a uniquely anti-LGBTQ discrimination, uh, anti-LGBTQ administration, and I think it has been particularly painful because it's coming after an administration that um, grew to become you know, more pro-LGBTQ um, in a time of successive, um, successive instances of progress. Maybe that's a good segue to really talking about this election and um, both uh, really on the local and state level, but also certainly everybody is focused and holding their breath when it comes to the presidential election for one reason or another. Uh, and well, of course, neither of us are making public endorsements and nor is this podcast. Looking at two candidates, it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned the role the Trump administration has played in using religion to mask their homophobia and bigotry. Uh, and at the same time, you have Vice President Biden, who um, has a long career where he has not always been uh, an advocate for the LGBTQ community, uh, certainly guided by some of his faith's Catholic principles at a time. But it was this, uh, you know, there are stories about this groundbreaking moments where it was he who publicly advocated as vice president for marriage equality in some ways when President Obama would not do so, that he forced Obama's hand to also do so prior to the 2012 re-election campaign. And so we have these two candidates, uh, Chad Griffin, the former president of the Human Rights Campaign, uh, recently said in an interview that if Vice President Biden was elected president, he would be the most pro-LGBTQ president in our country's history. I'm wondering your thoughts on that, whether he's uh, speaking in hyperbolic terms or if that speaks more to the progress of our nation in a short period of time and really the divisiveness of political parties, how one party has been steered more towards the right and one has been steered more towards the left. It's a dramatic statement, but I would agree with Chad. Um, I mean, certainly Biden's current pro-LGBTQ positions um, you know, are reflective of our progress as a nation um, and the Democratic Party's um, espousal of LGBTQ rights within their platform in a way that the Republican Party has not. Um, but certainly, I would I would I would agree with that. I um, there there have been many moments during uh, the last few years of the current administration when you know I know I and other LGBTQ people have felt afraid that um, if things continue as they have been, that we could lose everything. I mean, most of Keshet's work within the public realm during this period um, has not been work to advance LGBTQ equality, but rather to protect LGBTQ equality. You know, there was an effort in Massachusetts um, to legalize discrimination against transgender people. Um, and you were, you, were, you were speaking of Prop 8 earlier, Jesse, um, the, the, those um, largely conservative religious groups that were behind this effort in Massachusetts, um, they decided to push for this in Massachusetts because they said 
this is going to be Massachusetts Prop 8 because they were sure that they would win. And then once they rolled back trans rights in Massachusetts, they would go on to do so in less liberal states around the country. Um, now, thankfully, despite uh, the gross fear-mongering tactics that they used, such as the you know, mythical transgender man in a dress going into bathrooms and terrorizing little girls, even though there's never been a single case of that happening, um, you know, we won um, after a very long and hard-fought campaign, and I'm very proud that the, the Jewish communities of Massachusetts played a historic and unprecedented role um, in that campaign. We were able to mobilize over 70% of all Jewish institutions in the state, um, and uh, you know, and you know, and so we um, you know, really uh, did did really did tremendous work um, and really really had an impact. But, um, but that kind of work to, you know, so much energy and resources being invested in just trying to keep things as they are, not trying um, to right. pass legislation to make things better. That's really been the story of the last few years. Um, and, you know, with the empowering of um, religious conservatives who um, seek you know, to have free license to use their so-called religious freedom as a reason to discriminate. Um, you know, it's it's you know it's very frightening to imagine how that could um, how that could develop and how that could lead to a real rolling back of the critical hard-won rights we have. But without asking you to prophesize. Um, with what you express, what is really at stake in in this election? Again, not looking for an endorsement of either candidates, but what could this country look like in 2021 and beyond? Um, I think what what's at stake is both the potential to to advance, the potential you know, to pass the Equality Act, which would legalize equality for LGBTQ people in every realm, not only in employment, which is what Bostock did. Um, you know, that uh, you know, is, is a piece of legislation that we have been trying to pass for decades in various forms. Um, and uh, you know, it's extremely unlikely that that would pass um, if the current administration remains in power. Um, and um, you know, and then of course, um, you know, there are you know so many rights that feel increasingly tenuously held. Um, you know, when we look at what's happening, for example, uh, with um, in, with foster care agencies and adoption agencies that are in where um, certain people increasingly feel that they will be supported by their government because they are in refusing to place children um, with LGBTQ families um, and sometimes with Jewish families or Muslim families. I mean, anyone who you know, does not ascribe to um, you know, certain Christian tenets. Um, so, you know, I, I think that really what's at stake with, without, um, without being dramatic are um, some really essential freedoms um, that we you know, have 
have gained in this country as LGBTQ people, also as Jewish people, um, you know, and you know, our ability to look toward the future and trust that things will indeed continue to get better. How would you respond when some point out uh, and celebrate notably that the um, that Richard Grinnell, right, the acting director of national intelligence, who Trump appointed as the first openly gay person to sit in a presidential cabinet and juxtaposing that with the administration's uh, attempt to roll back um, support and rights for the queer community, specifically for trans folk? No, I would, I would say um, I, I note that. I appreciate that as an achievement. And um, it really doesn't have any bearing on, you know, the you know, many, you know, the many trans people who've been hurt under this administration, the LGBTQ families who've been hurt, um, and, you know, all of the um, campaigns we have been forced to undertake um, in order to um, just fight to preserve the rights that we've won. And lastly, looking at this um, election season, really looking at the campaigns as a whole, I'm wondering if you can uh, spend a couple of minutes reflecting on the Pete Buttigieg campaign uh, and what it also meant for the LGBTQ community for somebody for the first time in our country for an openly gay person to run for president on a major party ticket to actually win a caucus. Uh, as, as an openly gay person? Yeah, I think uh, Pete Buttigieg's candidacy um, was highly significant for some and was alienating for others within the LGBTQ community. We're a diverse community like every community is. Um, you know, there were some for whom he was too politically centrist, um, too mainstream, white man um and you know so there definitely was not a kind of monolithic swelling of support for him um and for sure there were people um who just as they never thought they would live to see the day when they or anyone gay could get married um you know never thought they would live to see the day that anyone openly gay would be a member of congress never thought they would live to see the day that there would be an openly gay viable candidate for the president of the United States. And, um, you know, and that was highly affirming for people. Thank you for sharing. I think back to what you said a few moments ago about this current administration's role in propping up religious voices, uh, those who use religion uh, as an excuse for their bigotry and the work that Kesha does of really trying to push the Jewish community even further and making sure that there is a place to celebrate the LGBTQ community within our Jewish communities and really our role, especially when religion is being used as a prop to try to justify one hatred and bigotry and homophobia, how we all the more so then on the flip side need to use our religion, need to use Judaism and Jewish community to say, that is not my faith and that is not my God and that is not my Torah, that is not my text 
that that is not what my Judaism stands for. Yeah, and I would go further. I would say it's it's our responsibility to say, you know, you know, I see that as blasphemy. You know, I see that as violating our values as people of faith. I see that as antithetical to what it means to be a good Jew. And this is what it means to be a good Jew. Um, you know, I think that's, it's, it's so critical. It is so powerful for LGBTQ people to see straight cisgender Jews making those arguments. Um, and I've learned it's very powerful for people outside the Jewish community to see Jews acting um, because of our tradition. I'll never forget in 2005 or six during the fight to maintain marriage equality in Massachusetts when there was an attempt to pass a constitutional amendment, um, I led a delegation of some um, members of a synagogue um, of, a, of a certain Massachusetts legislator's district to meet with that legislator. And he was this young Catholic guy and he was so delighted that we were there, as he put it, as quote unquote people of faith. Um, and I say quote unquote because I was bringing people from a, a reform or conservative, I forget synagogue, but whatever it was, they didn't really think of themselves as people of faith. It wasn't really a term that resonated for them, but they went with it because it meant a lot to him. You know, and he said, you know, I have been so inundated with postcards and calls and lobbying visits from members of the Catholic Church um, it, who are acting according to the tenets of their faith. It is so important that now I can say, I have met with people of another faith who are coming and saying that it is because of our religious tradition, it is because of the ethics of our tradition that we are coming and saying that we need to recognize and honor the dignity of each person and recognize and honor the dignity um, of each relationship. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a real power to that. Beautifully said. I think especially to our listeners who are a part of the Jewish community, that this is really about how does our faith guide us in this issue? How does our faith guide us? It's not just we're Jewish and we believe in LGBTQ rights and we believe in human dignity for all. That certainly should be true. But I truly believe, and this is, you know, you have to stop me if I'm getting too rabbinic. I sometimes, my rabbinic, my rabbinic voice comes out, but it's specifically because we're Jewish and because we're grounded in the ethics and values of our tradition, because we believe that everybody is made in God's image, because we believe that the most essential commandment is to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves, that we believe in the push for LGBTQ rights and we fight for them and we celebrate are cis and trans and gay and straight and bi and gender non-conforming members of our community equally. Amen. Besides the verses that I just shared, are there any other lines of texts that you turn to from our tradition that motivate you in your work? Uh, I love that question. Um, I return in again and again to the mandate to us not to oppress a stranger for we know the feeling of being a stranger, which of course appears in the Torah, not once, not twice, not seven times, not eight times, but 36 times. Um, and you know, I really hold that as something that um, 
kind of helps anchor my own work to enable LGBTQ Jews to feel a sense of belonging in Jewish life, to anchor that within my own tradition, that this isn't something that I've invented. This isn't something um, that you know, I am bringing to the Jewish community. This is a part of our tradition. Um, it is right there and appears 36 times an injunction to us not to oppress a stranger and instead to do the opposite, um, to help the stranger feel a sense of belonging. So based on that idea, I'm wondering if you can um, help someone like me, uh, who is a proud ally, uh, but acknowledge the privilege I have as a cis straight male. Um, how can I and how should I balance that advocacy and allyship versus not being the voice and propping up the LGBTQ members of our community to be the voice for that advocacy work. It sounds like you know what you're doing, Jesse. So I would say do more of it. I would say, um, you know, talk to the members of your congregation who are LGBTQ and you know hear what it's like for them. I, I would imagine that you do that, but if if Perhaps, but perhaps do it more regularly. I mean, we often hear from the LGBTQ Jewish teens who get involved with Keshet that um, you know they feel like their rabbis have no idea what their experience is and no idea how isolated they feel. So, um, you know, talk to people who occupy different positions um, within congregational life um, and never underestimate the the power of speaking of using your power as a rabbi you know to speak out publicly on lgbtq rights issues in the public square i remember learning with rabbi stephen greenberg a couple of years ago and he shared a uh, troubling statistic about the the rate of teen suicide in this country how high it was um, but also how much higher the rate of teen suicide was among the LGBTQ community. Uh, but then shared a study from, I believe it was from the University of Washington, who suggested exactly just that, that uh, while the rate of teen suicide or attempted suicide is still way too high, that among the LGBTQ teen population, for those who felt loved and accepted and celebrated by their parents by their clergy, by their teachers, by those who are in leadership positions uh, in their vicinity, that that number drops to the, the average number in society. And that's really something that has stuck with me, that um, those who are in positions of power, and I think that's for many of us, that's all of us, because we don't know who is influenced by the words that we say and by the deeds that we do. So in many ways, all of us uh, have the ability and opportunity and thus responsibility and obligation to make sure that when we are really advocating for the rights for all, we have the very much potential to be saving somebody's life because we're helping them understand their worth in this world and we're celebrating that worth as we're advocating. 
Absolutely, that's that's a, a study that I often cite as well, um, because you look at the statistics and and the the statistics are even bleaker for trans teens than they are for LGBTQ identified teens, um, and you see that there is an antidote that loving supportive parents, loving supportive clergy teachers, um, it makes a difference, and there's a direct correlation in the positive. So the most important thing we can do is continue the work to create loving and supportive communities uh, to support and celebrate our LGBTQ members of the Jewish community to make sure they are not sitting on the periphery, but really celebrated as every member of our community should be. That's the work that we're trying to do. That's the work, Edith, that you're doing as President and CEO of Keshet. Thank you to Edith Klein for joining us in this conversation. And that's some of what is at stake in November's election, uh, not just how we uh, celebrate our LGBTQ community members, but really how we make sure that the rights that each person deserves are not at stake and are not threatened as a result of November's election on the local, state, and federal levels. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y. Uh, well, Edith shares with me that she's not on Twitter and is probably happier as a result. You can follow Keshet on Twitter. Keshet can be found at K-E-S-H-E-T-G-L-B-T-Jews. Election day is rapidly approaching and don't forget to make sure if your state is not a state that is automatically sending you your mail-in ballots, if safety and health is a concern, to request your mail-in ballot with enough time and send it in early to make sure your ballot is counted because every vote counts. Until next time, I'm Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. Stay safe and don't forget to vote.